The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tip City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. Today, uh, it's the best of the Book Nook. We can go back 24 years. Back in uh, 2000, we still had a lot of authors coming through our area on book tour. And this particular author was quite ambitious. He initially told his publisher he wanted to go to 100 cities on his book tour. And he was going to be driving all over the country to do that. Finally, he uh, pared down his aspirations and ambitions and cut it to 40 cities. But back in those days, authors would do that, especially authors that were fairly unknown. They would go out on these massive tours, and I would call J.D. Dolan fairly unknown. But he had a really great book out in 2000 called Phoenix, A Brother's Life. It's a memoir. Let's listen now to J.D. Dolan when he passed through Dayton, Ohio, 24 years ago. Good afternoon, Miami Valley. Welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and joining me on the program today, J.D. Dolan. His new book is Phoenix, A Brother's Life. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, J.D., why'd you write this book? Well, actually, I, I avoided writing it for a long time. Um, I was a fiction writer, and I tried uh, to write this story as fiction, and what I ended up doing was really just avoiding all of the difficult stuff. So at some point, about four or five years ago, while I was in graduate school, uh, I wanted to try working on some memoir stuff, just a short piece. And I was studying with Tobias Wolff, and I told him about the ideas that I had, and he said, well, what else do you have? And I said, well, there's this thing about my brother. And he said, tell me about that. And so I told him, and he said, I think that's what you should be writing. And I knew when he said that that he was right because it was really scary, uh, the notion of going back and, and going through all of this stuff. Um, and I wrote a short piece about it that ended up being very sketchy. And after I got that done, I realized that if I was going to do this, I'd have to go all the way with it and write it as a book, hopefully to sort of um, recapture what was some of some of what was really great about growing up with my brother, and also to deal with the, all the difficult stuff of his death and, uh, and the fact that he hadn't talked to me for five years before he died. J.D., you grew up uh, out in uh, Los Angeles area? Right. And you were the baby of the family. Right. Uh, I was uh, an unexpected uh, event in the family. Uh, my uh, closest sibling is is seven years older than me. Uh, my brother was eleven years older, and uh, he was my hero when I was growing up. And he really uh, was a role model for you. Uh, you. You did a lot of things together. Yeah, he was a, a great big brother because there was no uh, you know rivalry between us. Um, he would take me you know for drives in his car. He always had a nice car. And uh, he taught me how to ride a motorcycle and uh, throw a ball and uh, that kind of stuff. In fact, he gave you a motorcycle. 
Yeah, he did. He actually, uh, my sister's boyfriend uh, gave me one, this old one, just so that I could say I owned a motorcycle. Uh, and my brother surprised everybody by getting the thing running. And then he got himself a motorcycle, and we would go out riding out in the Mojave Desert. And uh, later, he gave me the motorcycle that he'd bought for himself and, and got himself a racing bike. And that, that was some of what was really great, was going out to the desert races with my brother. And, and uh, that was when I was old enough to be the, the little brother that, uh, that he'd always wanted. So, so you were hanging with the Invaders. The Invaders were a motorcycle club. Actually, there's a movie called On Any Sunday, and if you watch that, there is a, a segment uh, with one of the invaders in it. It's this guy, John McGowan, who used to race with his dog standing on his gas tank. And uh, in that segment, uh, if you look in the background when, when John McGowan comes into the pits, there's a little kid, skinny kid, standing in the background wearing a, uh, a light blue sweatshirt, and, and that's me. And they take a little pit stop, including the dog. Right. Phoenix. When we think of the phoenix, uh, we think of something rising up from the ashes. Yeah. Um, I mean, the title of the book is, is partly, you know, the town Phoenix, which is where my brother was airlifted after the accident. He, was, uh, he worked at a power plant out in the Mojave Desert, and there was a... Uh, a pipe failure, they called it. Uh, one of the high-pressure superheated steam pipes ruptured and blew into the room where my brother and uh, others were, were just getting ready to start work. And uh, they were burned very badly. Some people died immediately. Uh, others died uh, a few weeks later, and, and some people lived. Um, but he was airlifted to Phoenix. The rest were airlifted to Las Vegas and Salt Lake and uh, Long Beach, California. So I had to fly back to Phoenix, um, not knowing whether he was going to live or die, uh, or what, if he did live, if he'd still be mad at me, or uh, anything like that. But the title, um, it, it, it was one of those things, I, partly I wrote this as nonfiction, because who would believe it as fiction? You know, a guy uh, is burned very badly, and he goes to a burn unit in Phoenix, of all places. Uh, a guy who doesn't talk much and who has stopped talking to his brother uh, you know has this thing happen to him and then his other his brother is a writer who's just getting his first story published um, those are things that in fiction I think would seem too pat but they they actually happened so the title is um, is the place Phoenix but it's also a reference to uh, hopefully some sort of uh, um, ongoing life in fact, you were in Europe when you heard about the accident. You had to come back from what you were doing there. And we all have experiences with uh, loved ones, uh, be they family, uh, friends, whatever, where things happen. And for, for whatever reason, we stop communicating with them. We, we get mad. We, you know, things happen. And a lot of times we see history repeating itself. Uh, you talk about going to the hospital when you're quite young to visit your father's brother, and you reflect upon that. Yeah, uh, my father didn't talk to his older brother for 20 years, um, and it was never really clear to me what, uh, what the problem was. 
And later, you know, my brother stopped talking to me, and he didn't talk to me for five years. And, uh, you know, when, when you get some kind of distance on it, you don't see them as discrete events. You see them as, as part of this uh, uh, tradition, this unfortunate family tradition. And your father was estranged from one of your sisters as well. Yeah, not, not when he died. He uh, sort of softened over the years. But I think part of it was he would get mad about something, and then he wouldn't have any way to talk about it or to express whatever it was that was going on. And my brother was the same way. And so he would just stop talking to that person. And, and then after a certain point, because he'd stopped talking, either one of them I'm talking about now, um, it was that much harder for them to go back and start talking again. So it just sort of escalated. Your father strikes me as, as a real classic uh, person who uh, grew up there during the Depression, the, the kind of guy who, who uh, he was a man of few words. I, I love the story. Your, your dad drove a Greyhound, and I love the story about you riding along, and your dad's got an early morning drive, like to San Diego, and some guy is, is pulling out of his driveway, and your dad flashes his headlights at the guy, and the guy responds, and you said, who is that guy? And, and your dad says, I don't know. And, and then you went further into the conversation where you discovered that they had been doing this little ritual for years, yet they had no idea who, who the other person was. It was just so... It made you think, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those uh, examples of him, uh, you know, not talking... And yet he did have some kind of communication with this guy who just happened to be pulling out of his car every morning when my father's bus would go by. And so they would, you know, flash their lights at each other, and this became a kind of uh, friendship. And it, it amazed me that, that he would have that kind of uh, regularity, first of all, that, that that would happen. And also that he would never stop at some point uh, not stop the bus, maybe, but stop at some other point and and find out who the guy is and say hello. Mm -hmm. That it was just this thing, just as they were driving by. My guest is J.D. Dolan. His book is Phoenix, A Brother's Life. You're listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO, an interview I did with J.D. Dolan 24 years ago. WYSO, sharing community voices through inspired storytelling. Stay tuned. Got more of the program coming your way right after this. The best of the book now continues on WYSO, an interview I did 24 years ago with J.D. Dolan for his book, Phoenix, A Brother's Life. You had to write this, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I couldn't uh, avoid it any longer. It, um, you know, I felt like in doing it, I could somehow figure out a lot of things for myself and, and also do something for my brother. I mean, I really felt like I owed him something. Just the, the nature of the, of the disaster was, was so bad um, that I just felt like he deserved something better than that. And while your brother was lingering and suffering tremendously in, in the burn unit, you and the other members of your family were, were desperately seeking some kind of closure and... You got that, and, and this book is symbolic of that, isn't it? I hope so. Um, I mean, it, it, writing the book made me remember a lot of the really 
wonderful things about my brother and about growing up with him. And, you know, a lot of the book isn't just this grim stuff about this burn unit, which would have been uh, overwhelming, I think, to read if it was just about that. But a lot of it is about growing up in Southern California in this time that, you know, seemed kind of charmed. It was, uh, you know, before uh, Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King. And uh, the world seemed very promising and, uh, and wonderful. And so I, I really tried to capture that on the page. J.D., you've uh, clearly led a very interesting life so far. Uh, tell us about your uh, career in the music industry. Well, that started after my uh, career in, in karate. I was a karate instructor when I was a, uh, a teenager. And from that, I started working in the music business, uh, first as a roadie for bands. That uh, was before videos. So they would you know, throw a band out on the road for six weeks if they had a hit single. And from that, uh, after a couple of years, I became a road manager for different bands. And um, I did that for another three or four years. And it was when I was living that lifestyle of traveling, and it, and it was the uh, early 80s. It was, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And that my brother uh, started feeling very alienated from me. Um, I would, you know, breeze into town and, and say, hey, let's have lunch next week. Not really meaning that we were going to have lunch next week, but uh, my brother took things like that very literally. And I was just running with a crowd who didn't take stuff like that very seriously. And um, I think a number of those things built up over, over time, and uh, that, was, that was where the rift started. It was when I was in the music business. Um, it w I remember when I, w I had this decision that I wanted to become a writer was when I was working with Cher. And this is before she was a movie star. She was just this pop relic. Uh, she was very famous, but uh, her career was kind of going nowhere at that point. And so she did this big Vegas production to make some money. And I was the, the road manager for that. Uh, which meant that I was in charge of this entourage of 45 people. And there was very little for me to, for me to do because um, everybody knew their job, and we would go to Las Vegas, and we would just sit there for a month and do this horrible show. Or we would go to Caesars Tahoe or Atlantic City. And I remember I was sitting in this dressing room one night. It was all white, white couch, white piano, white television set. And I was watching TV, and I had the remote control pointed at the TV, and I was going through the channels. And down on the stage, Cher was uh, wheeled out on stage on top of this giant high-heeled shoe while the band started playing the intro to this Eagles song called Those Shoes. And uh, so I'm sitting up there, and I, you know, I hear the intro. And, and then when the spotlight hits Cher sitting in the heel of the giant high-heeled shoe, the whole audience would gasp. And so I'm changing the channels, and I hear this big, you know, the intro to the song, and then I hear this, <gasps> and I'm changing the channels. And then at that point, Cher would slide down the instep of the giant high-heeled shoe, pop out of the open toe, and the six dancers would pick her up and carry her around the stage like a trussed pig. And um, 
at that point, the audience would go wild. So I'm sitting up there changing the channels, and I hear guitar intro, <gasps> and then I hear this huge applause, this cheering and applause. And I just stopped and looked at myself and thought, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I was 24. I hadn't gone to college. I really had no idea um, what I was doing. I was just sort of moving forward, you know, in some direction, maybe not forward, but uh, always moving. And that's when I made the decision to become a writer and to go to school and study writing. And... Uh, um, Unfortunately, that's the same time that my brother decided that he'd also gotten sick of my life is, is when I had that same realization about my own life. So you had this incredible moment of clarity. You, you realized that this, this isn't me. Why am I doing this? I'm sure you uh, probably went on the road with a lot of very interesting groups from the period uh, early 80s besides Cher. Do you have any names you'd like to drop? Uh, well, I went out with a lot of new groups, um, boy, some of whom, it's hard for me to even remember their names, Sue Sad and The Next. I remember them. D.B. Cooper, yep. who, who took his name from the guy who jumped out of the airplane, uh, the Larson Featon Band. Uh-huh. Neil Larson. And uh -huh. Buzzy Featon, sure. yeah. Uh, Larry Carlton, guitar uh -huh. player. Uh, Jimmy Messina, I was his road manager. Wow. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones. Uh, it's all late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, uh -huh. Jackson Brown, Kenny Loggins. Was that right after Ricky Lee put out her first album? No, uh, I was working with Ricky when uh, uh, she didn't have an album out, and she was kind of on the uh, at a low point in her life, I think. She was drinking a lot, and actually she would fire me on stage <laughs> fairly frequently. I, I think I was her uh, stage manager on that one, and uh, I would cut her off. She would be drinking, and I would... Uh, take the bottle away from you know the side of the stage, and she would pay the guys on the road crew to find it, and I would find them if they gave it to her, and she would pay their fine. And one night, I think we were in Connecticut. She uh, she fired me because I you know she was asking for a drink, and I was standing in the wings, and I was just shaking my head no, and she said, "That's it, JD, you're fired." <laughs> And uh, so I went, you know, I said, okay. And I was down at breakfast in the hotel the next morning, you know, reading my paper. And she came down kind of sheepishly and said, uh, sorry about last night. And I said, oh, that's okay, Ricky. Have some breakfast. <laughs> and then I think she fired me the next night, too. But uh, we actually became friends. Um, uh, she, she wanted to uh, read, and I also wanted to read and write. And so we, we had that in common. We actually talked about writing and reading a lot. It's amazing how many great artists are so tortured. I guess maybe there's something to that. Maybe that's why they're great artists. Yeah. Ricky, I think she's, she's very talented, and uh, she was certainly tortured at the time. But a lot of it, I think, was, uh, uh, you know, substance abuse. Um, I, I think she's cleaned up since then. I haven't talked to her in a while, but, um, you know, she, was, she rose to fame very quickly. And, um, you know, when I worked with her, she didn't have an album out at that point. It had been a few years. And it's much harder if you don't have this thing to promote and all the excitement that, that goes with it. So the attendance was down at her shows, and um, uh, she, was, she was having a rough time. Mm. My guest is J.D. Dolan. His book is Phoenix, A Brother's Life. Your brother 
was a very nuts and bolts kind of guy. You uh, talk about the differences between you and how your brother was offended by what seemed to have been superficiality on your part because you were just wrapped up in something totally different. Your brother uh, obviously was really good at fixing things, making things. Uh, you talk about the look he gave you when he saw one of your motorcycles taken apart. He just he, he was a very basic kind of realist, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, he, he owned an engine rebuilding shop, and he was really good at that stuff. And he always loved cars, and he loved to... Uh, take care of them. You know, I always loved, just loved driving them. I didn't, you know, want to take care of them. Um, and, I mean, the people who I worked with didn't, you know, fix their cars. They bought new cars. Um, but he was, he, would, he was also a very sensitive guy, and he would take offense very easily. Um, and then because he didn't talk much, this, it would become magnified. Um, and I think he liked working with with engines and stuff like that, because they made sense. You know, people were much more unpredictable. And an engine, you know, you could get it running right, and it would run right. And people were, you know, they would say one thing, and they would mean something else, and um, I think he was constantly troubled by that. He went through a, a divorce, which clearly had, a, had an effect that lasted um, you really kind of stopped talking to him right about that time, didn't you? Well, he moved away. He moved to Northern California and started working up there. So he just wasn't around. And I was uh, a teenager, so I was kind of hanging out with my de other deadbeat friends and, and smoking pot, and uh, it was really just kind of aimless. Um, but you know, one of the things that I figured out in writing the book are some of these the things that happened and uh, in relation to other things and one of them is that my brother got married the weekend after he'd had this huge blow up with our brother-in-law um, and he was very upset about it. I think he lost his job because he was working for my brother-in-law and he went out the next weekend and drove to Las Vegas and got married and so I see some of these things very differently now than I did at the time you know, I, I didn't really, I was just a kid, so I didn't, you know, I remembered these things, but I didn't see them in context with other things. Um, so that was very interesting to realize that, him, you know, his, he wanted to get married, um, that it had something to do with, you know, feeling hurt and um, um, wanting to, I think he kind of wanted to rescue the woman he, he ended up marrying. Never a good reason to get married. Right, yeah. right. You uh, describe uh, an experience in the book that, that I found to be uh, fairly hysterical. Clearly, it was, it was a life-changing experience for you, and that was this acid trip that you took. That, that, your description of that is absolutely hysterical. I don't know if it was intended <laughs> to be that way, but when you thought you were paralyzed, you know. Yeah, I was living down in Laguna Beach, and this is when I'd been out on the road for a while. Um, it was before I worked, worked with Cher. And uh, one of the truck drivers had given me um, some acid. And I'd, I'd never taken it before. And uh, he, he said, it's kind of weak. You might need to take you know, more than one. And I said, oh, OK. So I was down there, and I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. And I took a couple and didn't feel anything, went out to dinner. and. 
woke up kind of early the next morning and thought, well, I, I want to see what this stuff feels like. And took a couple more and went out to breakfast and didn't feel anything and took a couple more. And at some point, uh, I started coming on to the, the acid while I was out at breakfast. And I uh, remember laughing about something that was in the paper about Nixon. He was living down in San Clemente still then. He was out of, out of the, wasn't president anymore, but he was still living down there. And I just thought it was hilarious. And I was laughing about it at the, the little bakery where I used to get coffee. And I went across the street to the Photoshop as soon as they opened, and I got the one of the first all-everything cameras. You know, it was auto-focus and auto-advance and everything. You could be on acid and take pictures with this camera, and I, I have two rolls that, that prove this. And so I went out that day, and my logic for the day was that if I made the police paranoid, they leave me alone. <laughs> so I have all these pictures of, you know, meter maids writing tickets and you know, a patrol car, you know, you look at the picture and there's nothing. And then if you look in my rear view mirror, you'll see a patrol car. Uh, so all of the, the pictures have this theme running through them. But at some point during the day, uh, I really had this awful reaction to the drug. And I raced home and got inside the doorway far enough to, to throw up and then fall down face first uh, in it. And... You know, I was laying there, and I thought, well, I'm going to die because I, I couldn't move. And then I I guess I just passed out for a while, and then I woke up sometime hours later, but I still couldn't move. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm paralyzed. I'm. This is it. This is really bad. And I realized at some point in there that I wasn't paralyzed, but my head had... Uh, uh, gotten stuck in in <laughs> the vomit that had dried around my head, and uh, I take it your hair was a little longer. <laughs> it was, <laughs> uh, so I kind of uh, pulled myself free and and got up. But I, I, that scene is in the book uh, because it was just at that time. That was one of the times that I'd said to my brother, "Hey, you should come down to Laguna next week. I'm going to be back in town." And uh, I'd just forgotten that he was coming down there. I was off during the day, goofing off, taking pictures of you know, patrol cars or something. <laughs> and that was one of those times that my brother was going through this divorce. And uh, it was a time that he really needed to talk to me. And uh, you know, I just wasn't there for him. And to me, that was one of those times that I still regarded him as like this father figure rather than my brother. And... I don't think either one of us ever fully grew out of those roles. Um, and he was my big brother, and I, I gave him this um, inordinate amount of respect, I think. And um, so that that's why that scene is in the book. Uh, it's because there, there was this other part that was going on. It's like that's what I was doing when I was, uh, wasn't being a very good good friend to my brother. And at one point, your brother actually does come out and uh, go to a little party at your place that you describe, and uh, you're constantly running around trying to intercept him as he's meeting different people to, to sort of monitor the conversations and make sure that they don't say anything that your brother's going to be scandalized by. You, yeah. you, you were like micromanaging the whole thing, and there's a guy at the party who used to drive Richard Nixon around. <laughs> that was another... That was, uh, that was my friend Woody. He was... Uh... A great driver. 
he, uh, he was the, f- the guy who trained me when I first went out on the road. He'd been this sort of legendary roadie for Seals and Crofts and uh, a bunch of other people. And he uh, used to be a Marine. And when he was a Marine, they had him stationed down at, uh, I think, El Toro or Camp Pendleton uh, to drive Nixon. If Nixon happened to want to go somewhere, they would call the base and they would send somebody out. And, and Woody was one of the drivers. Um, and once Woody was, you know, goofing off. This was long before I knew him. He was goofing off and he'd taken some acid and he got the call. <laughs> and he went ahead and went there and drove Nixon on acid and, you know, drove flawlessly. And uh, But it actually happened twice, <laughs> he told me. Um, oh, so wow. that was the, my crowd of friends. Uh, and I was just worried that they were going to start smoking pot or that they would start talking about, you know, God knows what. And I, I just didn't think my brother would approve of any of this stuff. So I, uh, you know, I was just, I just wanted him to come down, kind of hang out for a little while and then take off. And, and I didn't want to, uh, I didn't know that he could, could deal with all of them. He might be amused by them too. You're listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO going back 24 years to an interview I did with J.D. Dolan for his book, Phoenix, A Brother's Life. We'll have more right after this. You're listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO, our final segment with J.D. Dolan recorded 24 years ago talking about Phoenix, A Brother's Life. And life is funny because... It seems like sometimes when we enjoy our greatest successes at the same exact time, something horribly tragic can be happening to us. And here your brother is so close to dying, and you have something wonderful going on with your career at the same exact time. Yeah, my first story was being published in the Mississippi Review. And I'd been writing for a few years at that point, studying writing. And... um, and so I was very excited about it, and I, I borrowed some money. I was bartending, and I borrowed some money from a friend and, and flew to Paris. Uh, and this buddy of mine had an apartment there, and he was gone, and he said, you can just stay in my apartment. So I wanted to kind of get away while this story was you know, coming out so I could just think about my life as a writer and you know, really be serious about it, and, and also just to get away from my phone and my mailbox that I you know, watched, thinking that the, you know, the copy of the magazine was going to come any minute. Uh, and then, you know, I got this phone call saying that my brother had been in this accident and that I needed to fly home. Um, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the copies of the, of the story came to me while we were heading out the door to go to the funeral. The mailman was walking up the step and said, oh, I've got this box for you. And, uh, it wasn't exactly a, a jubilant moment, was no, it? No, no, not at all. <clears throat> My guest is J.D. Dolan. His book is Phoenix, A Brother's Life. I love the way you write. You, you have a wonderful style, and I understand that you've also been published in the Antioch Review. Tell us how that happened. Yeah, I sent uh, a story to Bob Fogarty. Uh, I'd always admired the magazine. He seems to... Uh, pick really great stuff, and he also uh, publishes stuff by new writers, and I always admire that. 
in any magazine, but especially a literary magazine, because I think that that's what they should be doing is, is publishing new writing by new writers. And I think too often what literary magazines do is they publish second-rate work by well-known writers. And some of them, you know, sort of make a reputation for themselves doing that because they're publishing famous writers. And I think um, what the Antioch Review does uh, is the opposite. They'll, they'll publish something by a well-known writer, but only if it's really good work. And they'll also publish work by unknown writers. And, um, you know, you always see the Antioch Review in the anthologies, like Pushcart Anthology and... Uh, the story that I had in there was reprinted in New Stories from the South. Um, it's a very successful magazine, and I admire it a great deal. Who are some of the up-and-coming writers that you've noticed that you think are doing good work? Mm, there are a lot of them right now. Um, Fred Lebron has a novel out called Six Figures that just came out. Um, a woman named Martha Sherrill has uh, a nonfiction book out called uh, The Buddha from Brooklyn, wonderful book. Um, and then, you know, there are new writers like uh, Josie Milliken. Uh, I think she's published one story. As a matter of fact, that was in the Antioch Review. Um, there are a lot of writers out there doing great work. You yourself are teaching writing? Mm-hmm. I teach uh, at Western Michigan University. And... Uh, I enjoy it a great deal. I've done lots of other stuff over the years, everything from being a custodian and a truck driver to, uh, to this. Living life to the fullest, having all these different life experiences really helps in your craft, doesn't it? I think so. Some people, uh, you know, go through school, you know, high school and then college, and then they get into an MFA program. And this isn't to say that, you know, life somehow doesn't go on while they're doing all of that stuff. But I think it does help particularly to take a break between college and graduate school. Um, it just gives you more time to do other stuff and um, more experiences, more things to write about. This is quite an ambitious tour that you've embarked on. Tell, tell us uh, what your uh, plan is. Well... I originally, I talked to my publisher and I said I wanted to do a 100-city book tour because I was used to going out on the road with bands and we would go out for months at a time. And they laughed at me when I told them that. So anyway, I'm doing a 40-city book tour that I'm just getting started on now. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it because I get to drive all over the country and I love driving. It, it kind of reminds me of my brother when I drive. And... Um, it's terrific. I, it's not like working with a band where you know, it was just airport, gig, hotel. Uh, this is, I get to go out and talk to people and talk about writing and, and talk about the book. And uh, it's really terrific. I'm very happy to be doing it. Are you driving a Corvette? No. You know, I asked the people for, for, from Corvette for a car and they, they turned me down. I can't believe it. You're serious? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm driving my Audi. Okay. Well, I, I'm really impressed with the book and uh, with your ability to, to share what are really pretty intimate experiences with, with a greater public. I, I think there's a real message here for all of us. Thanks. I appreciate it. Are you working on anything right now? Yeah, I'm working on a novel uh, based on the life of the pool player, Ralph Greenleaf, 
who was world champion during most of the 20s and 30s, which was a time when pool was at its peak. Um, he was a huge star. He was mentioned in the same sports pages uh, uh, alongside Babe Ruth and Bill Tilden, Jack Dempsey. Uh, he made a fortune. He would do exhibitions in, uh, on the vaudeville circuit with his wife, Princess Naitai Tai, the Oriental Nightingale. And um, he was just a big star. He was also a very dark character. He drank himself to death. He died at 50 in 1950. And he changed the game of pool. People like Willie Moscone learned from Greenleaf uh, and other champions like Babe Cranfield, who I know, and others just idolized uh, Greenleaf. And I think that's kind of the connection between the two books for me is that my brother was this uh, heroic figure for me, and Greenleaf was this heroic figure for the whole country. And F. Scott Fitzgerald has this great line. He said, uh, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. And that's the way I think of Greenleaf. Well, we'll look for that. J.D. Dolan, you've been listening to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. Really great to meet you. Thank you, Vic. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the best of the Book Nook on WYSO. That was J.D. Dolan talking about his book, Phoenix, A Brother's Life. That was recorded back in 2000, 24 years ago. And I had not ever listened to that interview until recently, and I loved it. I loved uh, his subjects and that story about President Richard M. Nixon being chauffeured around by a uh, soldier who was under the influence of LSD. That was a pretty amazing story to remember. I'd forgotten that he told me that. And uh, the book that comes your way every Saturday morning at 7 and every Sunday morning at 10.30 – We have an hour-long show on Saturday and a 30-minute-long show on Sunday. But tomorrow, we're going to have a special book nook for you because uh, Jerry Kenny is taking the week off. So Why So Weekend will not be coming your way at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Instead, we'll bring you a full hour of the book nook. And I have a very special guest who will be on the program tomorrow. I've interviewed him more times than any other author. His name is James Lee Burke. He's got a new story collection out called Harbor Lights. We had him on the show six months ago for his novel Flags on the Bayou, which has just been nominated for the prestigious Edgar Award, and I'm so happy for him. He has had such an incredible career. And to get you ready for my interview with James Lee Burke, I'm going to read you an excerpt from one of his stories in this new collection. And the thing about him, when you Read James Lee Burke. You recognize his style instantly. His descriptions of nature and the underlying violence in a lot of his writing, it's so distinctive. This is from a story called Going Across Jordan by James Lee Burke from this new collection, Harbor Lights. We went down on the Powder River where those blind fish live way back under the cuts in the bank. The air was cold and damp and smoky from a stump fire, the sky black and sprinkled with stars. We went into a shack that had no door and no glass in the windows, among a grove of cottonwoods, and lay down on some gunny sacks and listened to the trout night feed in a long riffle that came right down the center of the stream, as shiny as a ribbon of oil under the moon. She had hardly spoken since we left the truck stop. 
I took her hand in mine and said her fingernails made me think of tiny seashells. Are you a mermaid, I said. You could have gotten both of us hurt back there, she said. I don't read it that way. Then you don't know very much about Wyoming. A man who abuses a woman is a moral and physical coward. That kind of man cuts bait as soon as you stand up to him. Truth is, I didn't feel very good about what I did back there, but I could tell that was not what was really on her mind. At the war bonnet, you split a paper match with your thumbnail, she said. Yeah, I do that sometimes. I lay back on the gunny sacks and watched a flock of birds lift out of the cottonwoods and fly low across the water, their wings drumming like they were made of leather. No, they were drumming as fast and loud as my heart. It's funny how your past always trails after you, no matter where you go. Where were you in prison, she said. A pea farm down in Texas. I wrote a bad check for $37. The gun ball sent me to get the water can off the truck, and I took off through a swamp and never looked back. The mud pulled my shoes right off my feet. I rode under a freight car, plumbed to Beaumont. She propped herself up on one elbow and looked me in the face. Are you telling me the truth? Who makes up lies about being an escaped convict? She put her fingers on my throat to feel my pulse and looked straight into my eyes. I could still smell the cherry milkshake on her breath. You're no criminal, she said. I don't think so either. She laid her head on my chest. I put my hand under her jacket and spread my fingers across her back. I thought I could feel her heart beating against my palm. Buddy Elgin and me are going to get us some land up in Montana, I said. We've got a spot picked out near a place called Swan Lake. The lake was scooped out of the land by a big glacier, right at the foot of this mountain called Swan Peak. The trout in the lake are big as your arm. It's country that's still new, where you can be anything you want. She felt the tips of my fingers, then felt between them and around the edges of the joints. Did you ever pick cotton? From can't see to can't see, till my fingers bled on the bowl and then some, I replied. My father cropped on shares and preached on the side. He called me a hoochie-coochie girl once, and I got mad at him. He explained a hoochie-coochie girl had music inside her. He used to preach out of what he called the Book of Ezra. He said before the flood, people ate the flowers from the fields just like animals grazing. He said the wind blew through the grass and made music like a harp does. I heard about people digging up dinosaurs and had flowers in their stomachs. Maybe that's what your father was talking about. It was an article in National Geographic. I heard her laugh. She curled against me and kissed the top of my hand and folded it against her breast. That's when I saw headlight beams bouncing through the trees and heard a diesel truck grinding down the dirt track, a car with a blown muffler following 30 yards behind. There was a man in a fedora on the running board of the truck. He was waving to the car to close up the gap like they have found what they were looking for. I know the differences between kinds of people. The drunks back at the truck stop worked at jobs that anyone could do and went to church on Sunday with wives who had been 100 pounds thinner in high school and woke up every morning wondering who they really were. The man in the fedora and the two men getting out of the diesel and the three getting out of the car were guys who avoided victimhood by becoming victimizers. Hollywood actors could stare down people till they blinked. 
these guys could make people wet their pants. The man who was obviously in charge was at least six foot five and wore a heavy cotton shirt and a yellow wool vest buttoned to his throat and a tall crown Stetson hat of the kind that Tom Mix wore. A badge holder with a gold badge in it was hung over his belt. You two get your asses out of here, he said. I went up first in front of Bernadine. I heard the muted sounds of moss-covered rocks knocking together under the surface of the river like the earth wasn't hung together proper and was starting to come apart. The windshields of both vehicles were clear of dust where the wipers had scraped back and forth across the glass. Inside the car, sitting in the passenger seat, I could see Buddy Elgin staring back at me, one eye puffed shut, swollen as tight as a duck's egg. The man in the Stetson pulled the keys from the ignition of the woody. He looked at Bernadine and stuck his finger through the keyring. You know that grand auto can cost you in this state? Um, Mr. Wakefield, let me use it, I said. He says you took off with it. That's not true. You can ask at the war bonnet. The bartender gave him the keys. Uh, that's Mr. Wakefield sitting up there in his Cadillac on the highway. You want to walk up there and call him a liar to his face? I knew how it was going to go. I'd been there before. I wondered how bad they had hurt Buddy. The man in the fedora opened the passenger door of the car and pulled Buddy onto the ground. Buddy's hands were cuffed behind him. His shirt was unbuttoned on his chest. He wasn't wearing his boots. And in the moonlight, the toes of his white socks were soggy with blood. Uh, we were invited to Mr. Wakefield's ranch, Bernadine said. He probably thought we stole his car because we didn't go straight there. Ask him. The man with the badge hooked me up crimping the steel tongues tight in the locks, bunching the skin and veins on my wrists. He turned toward Bernadine. If I was you, I'd go with the flow, girl, he said. He shoved me headlong into the back seat of the car, then picked up Buddy by his hair and the back of his shirt and did the same thing with him. I saw Bernadine's face slide by the window as we drove away. They didn't take us to a regular jail. It was a basement under a brick warehouse with windows like gun slits that had bars high up on the wall and a toilet without a door in one corner. The man in the fedora gave Buddy back his boots, but his toes had been stomped so bad he could hardly walk after he got them back on. At noon, a man in a filling station uniform with greased hair that was combed straight back and a face like a hatchet brought us a quart jar of water and a hamburger each. He refused to speak, no matter how many times we asked him what we were being charged with. What'd y'all do with Bernadine, I said. We didn't do anything, he said. You'd better not be saying we did either. He went up a set of wood steps and locked the metal door behind him. Buddy was sitting in the corner, his knees drawn up in front of him. He drank from the water jar but didn't touch his hamburger. They're studying on it, he said. Studying on what? What they're going to do with us. I unwrapped the paper from my hamburger and started to eat, but I couldn't swallow. Mr. Wakefield set me up, didn't he? His wife flew out late last night to visit her mother in Denver. He thought you were going to bring the girl out to the ranch. I heard him yelling at Tyler. He was mad as hell. About what? He wanted his way with her. What do you think? I couldn't believe I'd been so dumb. I'd been on the drift since I was 15. You learn a lot of lessons if you're young and on the drift. If you're thumbing, you find out your first day that only blue-collar people and people of color will pick you up. A rich man never picks you up, and I mean never, unless he's drunk or on the make. That's just the way they are. I've gone and forgotten the first human lesson I'd ever learned. Supper time came and went, but nobody brought us any more food or water. If we wanted a drink, we had to drip it out of the toilet tank with the jar. 
The sun was a red ember inside a rain cloud when we heard somebody unlock the metal door and come down the steps one booted foot at a time. I hoped it was Mr. Wakefield. I wanted to tell him what I thought of him and expose him for the cheap Hollywoody fraud he was, but that was not all I was thinking. I was drowning in all the memories that traveled with me everywhere I went. At age 15, I was sent to Gatesville Training School for boys. Nobody knows the kind of place Gatesville was. People would run from the stories I could tell. That's why I, even today there are nights I keep myself awake because I don't want to give my dreams power over me. Our visitor was not Mr. Wakefield. It was the man in the Stetson. Under the overhead light, his hat darkened his face and seemed to give him a permanent scowl. He was dressed in an unpressed brown suit and was wearing a spur on one boot, and I could see tiny wisps of hair on the rowel. There was no sign of his gold badge. You, he said, pointing at Buddy, upstairs. What for, Buddy said? Because you look like you have more than three brain cells. Anything I do includes RB. Your window of opportunity is shrinking by the second boy. Don't misjudge the gravity of your situation. Buddy followed the man with Stetson up the steps, trying not to flinch each time his weight came down inside his boot. And that's James Lee Burke from Harbor Lights. His new story collection, his third story collection in all these years. You heard about it on the book, Nook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>